for the week of July 16th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 623, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And outside Moe's, sitting in my car in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. I'm driving to Denver, by the way. I don't think it'll interfere with our shows. It might interfere with one, delay one a day. But I will be driving out to Denver, cross-country, taking my niece across country to go to grad school. And, and uh, that is next week? No, that is like a, I don't think it, I think it's the week after that. What, are you checking your calendar? Okay, well, uh, I am actually out of town next week, so I'm glad you brought that up. And oh, we didn't talk about Oh, is there no show before. next week? There's no show next week. So oh my funny. God, people, people. Funny. So, so <laughs> no show on this. the 24th because of Sperling. I'm, I've <laughs> rearranged my, my, my niece's life so that it wouldn't interfere with an episode. I'm flying to Pennsylvania on the 26th and then driving right after her dentist appointment on the 27th, 28th, 29th, 30th, and then flying back on the 31st. But I arranged to have four hours in an airport layover so we could record the show on the 31st. Maybe Sperling will let us down again, or maybe we'll only have one week off. Or we'll just record No, 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 no. I, 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 I will be back. Oh, okay. What is it this time? This is the, the family vacation. So the, you know. The, Can you the, say where, or is that a secret? No, it's uh, in Oregon. What are you doing in Oregon? I not that Oregon I, isn't a lovely state. I have no idea at this point. I'm just going where they tell me. Because are you I, on a raft? Myself, are you in a camper? Camper? Are you in a boat? What are, What are you doing in Oregon? Are you climbing a mountain? I, you know, Bend, Oregon. Whatever you do in Bend, Oregon, apparently that's a, what I'm doing. You get in a boat. You get in a boat. Okay, I guess I'm getting in a boat. Mm. Will you be? Uh, you know what? A, As a matter of fact, the boat I'm getting on is Bob Iger's first luxury yacht. His first super yacht. He's building another one. So oh, he's, good. he has that's going to be 30 feet longer than the 180 foot yacht he has now. Are, are you lying? And, no, 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 no. Oh I'm my not. God. That's so no, well, well, I am lying about the fact that I'm getting on his yacht. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But he is that building a new super yacht amidst negotiations with those yes. unrealistic writers and actors. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll be dealing with him for another two years, the great white savior, Bob Iger, back at Disney. And of course, when he came back, he's like, well, it's only for two years. I'll pick a replacement. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we are almost two years later, and they're extending his contract to 2026. Maybe Donna Surprising Langley was absolutely right. Surprising absolutely nobody. Surprising nobody. Yeah. Right. Maybe Donna Langley was right to say, yeah, I don't think I'm interested in being his replacement because he's never leaving. <laughs> and yeah. we're never leaving too, except for a week. Uh, but we've got a big show for you. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are ready to strike. Let's face it. We're ready to strike. Now, we just need our picket signs and a few catchy slogans to write on them because apparently you have to write your own slogans these days. Don't uh, mess or- with the effing fan- nanny. That's our, that's yes, our slogan. That, that's our new slogan. Uh, by the way, uh, if Bob Iger, I, I know Donna Langley didn't want to um, you know, be mm-hmm. his replacement, but if Bob Iger wants to groom a team to take over Disney in two years, we, are, we are definitely ready to be groomed. And mm-hmm. yes, as I said that, I realized that doesn't sound right. It came out, <laughs> Sounds a little creepy. Doesn't, yeah. But I've been to a theme park. I've read comic books. I've... I've watched TV shows and movies. I think like we're qualified. I, I agree. I, I stopped watching TV. So, you know, just. Uh, You're the future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in any case, everyone learned one thing this week. 
Don't mess with Fran, as you just pointed out. From saying they were pleased with the progress to declaring they were shocked by how far apart the sides were in their negotiations, the strike by SAG-AFTRA is here. We'll be talking to Jonathan Handel of Puck.News, and he's also, of course, an entertainment attorney, and he's written the book, literally written the book on labor unions and and Hollywood. Uh, And we're going to be talking about the latest news and what to expect in the days, weeks, and yes months ahead when it comes to this latest strike, and a dual strike it is. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the Emmy nominations. It seems like Emmy voters face the same problem as TV critics. There's just too much television to watch. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines, or at least we would if last week wasn't a holiday and nothing much happened. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment Whoa. journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Now, I know what you're going to say, Michael. I can already tell you're going to say, oh, I should have changed that bit about it being a holiday because last week wasn't a it's, holiday and actually everything happened last week. It's an area of the intro that's usually standard. It's boilerplate. Right. It's there every week. Uh, And I tweaked it one week, and I forgot to change it back. My fault. Of course, Burnley might have read the intro and glanced at that area. I I did read it, and and I was like, well, maybe he means from, like, maybe less happened, but I really think more happened last week. Mm -hmm. And I left it. (laughs) Well, I I threw it over to you, our our entertainment journalist extraordinaire. To fill us in on this week's worldwide box office, we're looking at box office from around the world for the week. Ending July 16th, I'm on a rampage to make sure the trades stop playing games and just be accurate. If a movie opened for six days, say six days. If it's a four-day gross, just say it's four-day gross. Do not play the game of the studios. Be accurate. But anyway, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 opened on Tuesday. And I saw it on a Tuesday. So it has had six days of grosses to hit. $235 $235 million worldwide. It had what a, did you think? I thought it was pretty fun. One of the better ones. I, I, none of the Mission movies are on my best of the year list. This one won't be either, but I thought it was pretty solid. I thought Haley Atwell was terrific. I've liked her on TV, and she really shined. Really, it's, uh, it's her moment. I thought she was just terrific, super appealing and fun and interesting and smart and good. And I just li- liked her performance a lot. It was a real movie star performance. And uh, I enjoyed that the most of the movie. The rest of it was a little pro forma, but it was fine. You know, it was what it was. And I was happy to see it, though it was awfully long. <laughs> but that's okay. But it costs a lot of money to make because of COVID in part. And it has opened up to $235 million worldwide. It's never been a big opener in North America. It's always been a slow burn for some reason. I don't know why, because it's such a brand name. But we have every reason to think it will have a strong multiple. We have every reason to think it'll make most of its money overseas. And it's doing quite well overseas. So overall, $235 million for a movie that, and a franchise that typically will have very good legs is a good, solid start. The one blip is China, where, you know, the Chinese economy may be struggling, but by God, they're still having hits with the movies. They're doing very well with their own homegrown movies, and audiences did not turn out for Mission Impossible. It made almost a third of what the last Mission Impossible movie opened up to. But again, the word of mouth should be good. Younger people may come out, not that the old folks have trundled to the movie. Maybe the younger folk will come out and check it out, and it should be fine when all is said and done, but it's going to have to get to almost a billion dollars because it costs so much to make. 
Well, usually there is a multiple of about 4.1 to a, a for this Mission franchise. Impossible. For yeah. this franchise, yes, yes. For this franchise, they they go to four point one. So if you think about it, it, it'll probably top out between two hundred twenty five and two hundred and fifty million dollars. And usually, where in North America? In North America, yes. Yeah, but I mean, it's a multiple of what? Because we're looking at a six day opening of eighty million or a four day uh, opening no, of fifty six million. Sorry, it's a f- sorry. I should have said opening weekend, so it's a three day number. But so it's not. It's a four-day number because it would have opened up on – for years now, these movies have opened up on Thursday. So that's a four-day number. And opening weekend is really a misleading term. So that multiple, which used to mean we've had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, now encompasses a Thursday gross. So I imagine that's going to throw off those multiples and all that stuff into Time a little bit of confusion. Right. So if you look at a four-time multiple of the first six days, that would mean $300 million in North America. Well, definitely between 225 and 300. Definitely, definitely. That's what you're saying. It will definitely gross between 225 and 300. Roughly. Write that down. Right? Rough. Definitely. Now it's roughly. About. Okay. Give, so or, take, give or take a few hundred million. Dead Reckoning, part one, opened up to very good reviews, very good audience scores, and decent numbers given the history of the franchise. At number two is Never Say Never, a Chinese film I'm still not sure what it's about, but it made another $88 million this week. It's now at past the $200 million mark and doing very well. Then at number three is a movie that's really catching fire. It's been grossing more and more money almost every day in a way. It's a, a Chinese animated film. It's almost three hours long. It's called Chang'an Sanwan Li. God help me. Sorry for that. It made $67 million this week, and it's just about to hit $100 million. We don't know what it cost, but we know it's an epic period action-y film, and it looks nice on the trailer, and it looks like it's doing really well with audiences. That's one reason Mission Impossible didn't do so well in China. You've got Never Say Never. You've got this movie. You've got Lost in the Stars, which made another $41 million this week. That thriller is almost at half a billion dollars worldwide, mostly in China. We've got another animated film called Oh My School that hit $18 million. Uh, You know, there's a Hong Kong movie called The White Storm, which is, you know, moving slowly. It's the third in the series, but it's at $40 million. So, you know, when you get to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, that seemed to be the fifth or sixth choice. Now, Sperling would look at the showtimes and say, okay, on Thursday or Friday, it had this many showtimes. Those fell in half Saturday and Sunday, but that really seems a reaction to what audiences wanted to see. You know, they say, oh, the theaters aren't that full, so we'll cut the screenings, which is good in a way because you want a full audience because that's a lot more fun to see a movie with a big crowd. You don't want 5,000 screenings that are 80% empty. You'd rather have 1,000 screenings where they're like, you know, 70% full. It's just a much better experience and you're more likely to get good word of mouth. But yes, China is really turning it on. They are definitely producing their homegrown movies that are appealing to their audience. Can they translate overseas? Well, I'd like to see some of these movies, like Chang'an Sun Wan Li. That looked really interesting. We'll have to see if they will begin to cross over even more. So back to the charts. Mission Impossible made $235 million. Never Say Never made $88 million. The Chinese animated film made almost $70 million. And then there's Elemental, the Pixar animated film that had a rough opening and some rough reviews, but audiences are really responding to it. It made $61 million this week. It passed the $300 million mark. It needs to get to $600 million to be considered a full-on success at the box office, but great word of mouth and audience response is never a bad thing. 
Right below that is Insidious, The Red Door. Huge hit already. $60 million this week, $120 million worldwide. Patrick Wilson, actor and now director with a big hit under his belt. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is still going strong. Another $54 million this week. It's now passing the $300 million mark worldwide. Like Mission Impossible, it costs a ton of money. Unlike Mission Impossible, there's no reason to think this movie is going to have great legs. It's getting a decent audience response, but it's already kind of slowing down. And, you know, it's, it looks like it's falling hard and fast in a way. It's not disastrous. It's not like uh, The Flash. But this movie is not going to have a long, long run in theaters that justifies that huge budget. Right below that is Sound of Freedom, or as I like to call it, QAnon, the movie. Another $45 million, $85 million worldwide, mostly here in North America, I think. This is the Jim Caviezel film about a kitty sex ring. Uh, people have questioned its accuracy, but audiences don't care. They love the drama. I heard two ladies talking in Chick-fil-A. What could be more Birmingham, Alabama than Chick-fil-A? And there they are, woman saying, oh, it was so powerful. It was so powerful. The word of mouth is great. If you're a red stater, apparently you're loving this movie. Uh, we already well, I mean, so mm -hmm. so it this movie managed to do something that very few uh, movies do, which is uh, it increased uh, its take and its uh, the number of screens it has week over week. Right when when you, when you increase and in, if you have a great hold, if you only drop by ten percent, we say woohoo. When you actually have a wide release and get bigger in your second week, that is indeed a huge response and indicates a lot of excitement for the movie and its legs. Uh, right below that is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, another $21 million this week. It's at $663 million worldwide. It's one of the best films of the year, and you deserve to see it on the big screen. It's still playing there. If you've got a chance, go check it out. Uh, Transformers is chugging along. That's at the $420 million mark. Uh, but when we're looking at the movies that didn't quite do it from the first half of the year, Indiana Jones, Transformers, The Flash, the list is long and getting longer. But in Japan, we have a lovely story. Hayao Miyazaki's Swan Song is, in fact, a movie about a heron, strangely enough. It's called The Boy and the Heron, or How Do You Live, depending, I guess, the territory or translation. That can't be a translation issue. But I'm not sure what it's called and what territory, but that's how we're identifying the movie, The Boy and the Heron, the final animated film, apparently, from Hayao Miyazaki. It opened up with no publicity, no press, no trailer, just a poster, and then they put out the movie. Nobody saw it in advance, not critics, not anyone. It opened to $13 million, some very strong IMAX numbers, and I'm not sure about the screen count, so we'll have to see what audience response is like, how it builds in the weeks to come to figure out where this movie ends up overall. I haven't even seen many reviews yet, but it's a movie I'm certainly excited to see, and he's one of the greats. So it'll be fun to see this movie. It does have a deal for North America coming out later in the year from G-Kids, which has often had a long relationship with uh, Studio Ghibli or Ghibli. Uh, so The Boy and the Heron has opened up in Japan, not to the huge numbers necessarily that I anticipated, but I'd love to go to Japan, see the movie and attend the theme park, uh, you know, that they have for Miyazaki. So uh, I can't wait to get some critical reaction for this movie. And if somebody knows the budget, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. 
We're also on Twitter, where we have actually started to post again. At Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And uh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. One or two more thoughts. Uh, no hard feelings to Jennifer Lawrence risky business comedy, an R-rated sex comedy of a sort, but it's a smart and it has a bit of a heart. It made $10 million this week. It's at $80 million worldwide. It cost about $45 million to make, so it's getting close to a clear profitability thumbs up. You know, it needs to get to like 120 million, so it needs another 50%, but it's having good legs, and that's nice to see. When all is said and done, this movie will be considered a success. Not a huge success, necessarily, but absolutely a success. No one's going to lose money on it. They will make money. Not necessarily from box office alone. When we talk about box office, we have a rough estimate of the budget. We assume you got to triple that worldwide, and that will at least indicate that you can say, yeah, this movie's a hit right off the bat. That doesn't mean movies are unprofitable if they don't triple their budget, but it certainly helps. <laughs> and of course, we're not looking at the books. We don't know all that stuff, but you know, we're doing the best we can, and that's a pretty good rule of thumb. And using that rule of thumb, we can look at Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, an animated film that's falling hard and fast. I think it has a lot of territories to open, but it certainly isn't doing well. It's at $35 million total. It costs $70 million to make you're not going to assume it's going to do really well overseas and make up that ground, but we'll wait until all is said and done. That brings me to The Little Mermaid, a live-action remake of Disney's classic animated film, one of the early signs that Disney animation was coming back for sure, and it's at $550 million worldwide. That's more than double what the original made, which was $210 million. Uh, it's huge in the Philippines. It's doing well with audiences. The problem is the budget. It cost $250 million to make. I'm not quite sure why. There are people like Melissa McCarthy involved in the movie, but in general, there's no big stars that are going to be able to demand a ton of money or any back end. It's a Disney movie. So why it would cost $250 million, maybe that's COVID-related? Whatever it is, if they had only kept it down to $200 million, and of course we don't know the actual budget, we would all be talking much more clearly about a big success story because it would be about to triple its budget. It's $550 million. It's close enough to say that's a winner. Unfortunately, it needs to get to $750 million. Of course, this is all from the outside looking in, but when you're looking at winner wins and misses or wins and losses, uh, this looks like a loss because it just cost a little bit too much to make. That extra $50 million really matters, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. That's right. I mean, so and, and, and I don't know where you are in, the, I mean, are you, I, I know that we already talked about Mission Impossible, but yeah. you know it's losing all of its IMAX screens. In, well, it is. I'm going to be seeing Oppenheimer, but I don't care about that. I don't think anybody's going to say, I don't want to see Mission Impossible unless it's an IMAX. I, I, right. I'm, I'm not quite recognizing or acknowledging the fact that there are people who will go see movie after movie in IMAX. And I'm like, why are you seeing that movie now? It wasn't shot in IMAX. Unless you're sitting dead center towards the back, you're going to have a, it's not going to be a very good image. So why the hell would you bother? And why would you pay $25 to see a movie when it wasn't shot to be seen in IMAX. Yeah, they want you to go see it in IMAX, and some of Mission, of course, was, but not most of the movie. So I say, no, just go see it on a big screen. It'll be great. Why are you paying an extra $10 to see it in IMAX? Oppenheimer was shot entirely in IMAX, and if a movie is shot a majority of it, or all of it, or the director really makes a good argument why he really wants you to see it in IMAX, 
okay, I'm in. Christopher Nolan wants me to see Oppenheimer in IMAX. I'm going to go. But for most people, for Barbie, why the heck would you spend money to see that in IMAX? Well, first of all, I don't think Barbie is being shown in IMAX, so let's start there. Well, it won't have uh, any screens, right? Every single screen is taken up by Oppenheimer. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, are you going to see uh, both in the same week? Are you going to go to Barbieheimer? No, I'm not seeing them in the same day as a double feature. Virtually no one is doing that, but they're making it sound like a big trend. Please. Oppenheimer's three hours long. Very few people ever go to a double feature unless they sneak into the next screen. Certainly people are not going to see, you know, six hours of movie between the uh, trailers and ads and seeing the two movies. That would be six hours, right? That's crazy. Very few people are doing that. But it's a cute gimmick. I love the online stuff. And I am actually seeing Oppenheimer on Thursday on IMAX 70 millimeter. And on Friday, I'm going to see Barbie. They both look fun. Fun isn't the word for Oppenheimer, but they both look like they could be very good movies. I have a lot of faith in Greta Gerwig. I'm hoping her movie will prove a real winner. It should at least be fun. And it's a it's a fun year at the box office. That's why I signed up for a pass to a theater chain, because I thought, you know what? I'm looking at the schedule. There's a movie every week, every other week. A monthly pass is going to pay off for me, at least for the next few months. So I signed up. But in general... When we look at the box office, the North American box office is down almost 23% from 2019. That's the last good year. Of course, it was a great year. But when you wonder why, you can look at the flops or you can just say, hey, how many movies are they releasing? Well, the total number of releases in North America is down 19%. So if you release 20% fewer movies, you'll probably have 20% less box office. That just goes to figure. So it's almost a wash. It may be slightly down, but what's mostly down is the number of movies you're releasing. Release more movies and more people will show up. That's certainly not the case in India. India is having a bad box office in general. We're not comparing it to 2019. We're saying it's down from last year. The Indian box office for the first six months is down 15% from 2022 when we had a lot of problems going on. So that's definitely moving in the wrong direction. But in China which may soon become the number one box office again, they're only down 9% from 2019. North American box office is down 23%. Chinese box office is down only 9%. We know that everybody's struggling still. We're still dealing with post-COVID stuff. Look at the Berlin Film Festival. They are dramatically downsizing. They're going to screen only about 200 films rather than almost 300 films compared to previous years. Virtually every category will screen fewer films. They are cutting a number of categories. They're also cutting a focus on TV and, this is the worst, a focus on new German filmmakers. If you're going to talk about new German filmmakers, surely it should be at the Berlin Film Festival. So uh, everybody's struggling with the new world order, and uh, it ain't easy. It ain't even easy for baseball, is it? No, as a matter of fact, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game here in the United States was held last week. Uh, Fox, which airs the the game, uh, had 7 million viewers for the All-Star Game. And you'd think that's a lot, but it's actually down 7% from last year. And last year was a bad year, so it's the lowest total ever for the All-Star Game. And here's the thing. It's the most watched All-Star Game out of all the sports. So... You know, I I don't think people like all star games. I think pe- people think they like them. You know, the the well, they used think to they matter. Like well, they used to not matter because 
they didn't in a lot of sports they didn't mean anything. Now it actually counts for something, meaning one team gets home field advantage or something in postseason. I think they I think series. they stopped that actually. But but yeah, and they brought that back and forth. The problem is that the players don't want to get injured. The teams don't want the players to play because they don't want to get them injured. They used to in baseball specifically, of course, you never met and played players from other leagues. You didn't only met them in the World Series. Now everybody plays everybody all the time. So it's just not special anymore. Players don't want to injure themselves. You've seen these players and these teams and these people face off against each other all the time. 50 years ago, the only time you would see a pitcher and a batter face each other was maybe at the All-Star game. That would be it. You know, unless they met in the World Series, the American League and the National League were not going to face each other ever. So you saw all these once a year or once a decade or once a lifetime opportunities to see what's that batter like versus that pitcher. What's that first baseman like, you know? So it was totally interesting if you were a fan. Nowadays, nobody wants to get injured. It doesn't matter. And if you do the, the home run derby, you're just a fool because that just tends to weaken you out for the rest of the season. So it's just a big mess. It's a big mess. Yeah, I don't know why people I haven't do watched it in, in a long time. Well, it's because it's the most popular part of the night. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah, so there you go. And that's a different night, but there you go. But, you know, uh, at least it's sports are happening. They're showing sports on TV. They're showing reruns of movies and TV shows from the UK. I mean, the industry, the TV industry is in a nightmare because of the actors and writers are striking. Yes, it's time to discuss the story rocking Hollywood. Both the writers and actors are now on strike. Who's going to help us understand all of it, Sperling? Well, indeed, Michael, you're right. Actually, the only thing that that really people are going to be watching uh, is sports for quite a while. Uh, And that probably at least until December. And we'll explain why Hollywood has lost its mind over the past week. I mean, it it it's. Uh, you know, this is the story that is really rocking Hollywood. Both the writers and actors are now on strike the first time in 63 years of for a dual strike, writers and actors. To help explain where we're at, as you suggested, Michael, we're delighted to welcome back Jonathan Handel. He's an entertainment and technology attorney at, at uh, I guess you're at Troy Gould, Jonathan, and uh, of course, the author of Hollywood on Strike. We already mentioned that you're writing for Puck News. Uh, now, you actually had a, a some detailed analysis over the past week. Uh, on Puck. Uh, and the last time we talked to you was about the Writers Guild uh, and Hollywood on Strike is about the last Writers Guild strike from 2007 to 2008. Uh, but thank you for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Um, and Hollywood on Strike is actually about, the book is actually about the Writers Guild strike from 07, 08 and the Screen Actors Guild SAG stalemate from 08 to 09 that was an echo of the Writers Guild strike. Very different time back then. The Screen Actors Guild decided that it did not um, uh, was not satisfied with the deal that was that the DGA had done, that the Writers Guild had done, that AFTRA had done in its daytime deal, and then AFTRA did in its primetime deal. In other words, that everyone else had done. But um, unlike today, there was not solidarity within SAG, let alone between SAG and AFTRA, and. Um, SAG found itself in a gray area because it takes a 75% yes vote to authorize a strike, uh, whereas it takes a 50% vote to reject a contract. So you can be in a situation where a contract won't be acceptable to the membership, but not so unacceptable that you can muster a strike. That was the situation Hmm. they were in in 08 and 09, and they worked without a contract for a year. Uh, They never had a plan B. They never had a plan A, actually. Um, 
But do you feel like people have a plan now? Yeah, they do. Um, they're going to stay on strike until they until they get something approximating what they need and deserve. I have burning questions from Hollywood's summer of hell. And happily, that happens to be the story you and Matthew Baloney have up on Puck News, Puck.News right now. So people should go check that out and subscribe to your newsletter or go to your personal website, jhandel, J-H-A-N-D-E-L.com. Uh, my first question is a, is a procedural question. We've been talking about how the actors are, you know, vote on this and the writers vote on that and the approval rating, the DGA, when they, when they approve a strike or a contract. But it turns out, of course, not everybody bothers to vote. Is it hard for people to vote? Are they doing it online? Because when you're seeing like only 50% no, of the people hard. bother doing to it vote. Online. It's online. Um, and by the way, I want to stand up for my, um, for my, for, for, for Matt. There is no baloney about Matt. He is, his name is pronounced Bellany. Um, oh, Bellany, I beg your pardon. <laughs> not at all, not at all. But no baloney is a good way to remember it. Um, Indeed. Uh, so if but, it's so um, easy, why did, why did so few people weigh in uh, for the, uh, you know, the appro- we see the approvals were high, like for the directors, but it was less than 50%, I think, of the people actually bothered to vote. 41%. Which is actually a pretty high turnout, it turns out, in these things. Um, uh, take SAG-AFTRA, for example, where I have a little, we have some more data points. Um, their strike authorization vote passed um, by with a 98% approval. Um, the turnout was the ballot return rate was 48%, which is still less than 50, as you, as you would, might say. But it is twice the return rate that they get for their elections. It's actually an extraordinarily high return rate. Um, so Why would so know, few people bother to weigh in on something that is so fundamental to their career? Especially if it's easy to vote and it doesn't, they don't have lots of barriers to voting. I'm, I'm a little intrigued by that. Yeah, there are no barriers. It's, these are online, all online voting. Um, Good to know. These things. I, I, don't have yeah. a, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, you know, why would so many, why does half the U.S. not bother to vote? It's obviously not as easy to vote, um, you know, as it is. Uh, you right. Know, when, when you make it easy, vote. people vote more. They do vote more. Um, but, you know, of course, the, the, the stakes are extremely high with, uh, you know, um, Trump and, and all of that. And people are like, people are like, oh, no, I don't want to vote. They're like, what? Well, you know, you know, so at the beginning of the week, we had a writer strike, which the writers in the AMPTP, the AMPTP represents all the studios and the networks kind of as a group. Uh, and so everybody's negotiating with the AMPTP. PTP. The writers had right, negotiated and the, stream, with the, and the streamers. We should say the streamer Netflix, yeah, and, Amazon, yes. Apple members. And, and so they they had not negotiated at all. Fran Drescher flies to Italy, has her picture taken with Kim Kardashian at some fancy thing. Now Fran Drescher is the president of SAG. After and everybody thought, well, shouldn't you be over in Sherman Oaks? You know, uh, negotiating with the AMPTP. Turns out she was working. Uh, and turned she, out she also was in Sherman Oaks at the same time because she 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 worked eighteen hour days and uh, after she did her uh, she was working she's a brand ambassador um, and was working in Italy and then after that work she would uh, zoom got in on Zoom yeah right well she uh, then on I guess it was Wednesday she gave this fiery speech Thursday that first the first day of the strike and she they said look I mean. I think Michael Giltz went right out and he voted for her for president. We had to remind him that you still need to wait another year to vote. But 
Uh, well, that's the comparison. The last time SAG, well, the 1960 strike, I should say, Ronald Reagan was on the board of SAG. He'd previously been no, the leader Ronald of Reagan it. was president. Ronald Reagan was, pardon me, Ronald Reagan was president of SAG a second time in the 60s. Right. They brought him back when they were doing the strike. He was he was right. president. Then he stepped down. He was on the board. Then he came back to being president for that strike, which isn't that ironic. And that was, a, as you have pointed out before on this show, that was where they made historic gains with their health plan, their pension plan and residuals. And now we have Fran Drescher, the next uh, actor head of sag after who is at the head of a very historic strike. This is a two-union strike. It's the first time in more than 60 years we've had a dual strike going on, and the stakes are just as high, aren't they? The stakes, the stakes are enormously high, and I was, in the, um, I was at the press conference where uh, on Thursday, um, the day after negotiations collapsed and the day before picketing began, the day the strike was declared, the press conference where the strike was declared. And uh, Fran's speech was fiery. Uh, the, 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 the room was absolutely electric. It was, it was filled beyond capacity. And uh, the actors would burst into applause during her, speeches, during her speech um, to the point where the, the, the press, it looked like members of the press were almost sitting on their hands to avoid uh, joining in the applause. <laughs> I mean, it really, I really, and I really had the same thought you did, which was like, this, this woman is giving a speech like she's running for president of the country. Uh, it, it was just absolutely uh, inspirational to the membership and, and, and fiery. You got to hear Teamsters say, don't mess with the effing nanny. <laughs> it, was just, right. it was almost surreal. Sperling? I, I think a lot of people that I saw, not a lot, but you know, some of the comments that were made uh, you know, in emails and on Twitter and on social media were, hey, you know, doesn't she get paid millions of dollars too? Aren't some of these you know, movie stars like Dwayne Johnson getting $50 million for doing some of these movies? You know, they get some pretty high salaries too. Not everybody is making you know, uh, you know, scale. It's a pyramid. It's, you know, no one ever said everybody was making scale. There is a, the, if you take the actors that everyone recognizes and everyone knows their name and they make millions and tens of millions of dollars, that is, you know, 0.1 or 0.01% of the union. It is absolutely a pyramid and they, they depend on the union for nothing. They are, they are union members, but they depend on the union for nothing. And this, this strike and these negotiations are not about them in the least. These, this is about middle class and working class actors who, in, from time to time, have trouble putting food on the table and keeping a roof over their heads in the two most expensive cities in the country. And it's gotten worse because residuals right. have fallen through the floor. Uh, uh, the jobs are scattered and less less consistent. And when you get a job, it's not for as long. And then you have longer gaps between work. I mean, everything has gotten harder for the actors and for the writers. And the scale, the increase in the increases, the annual increases in ba in the in the scale minimums, have not kept up with inflation. They were you know two two and a half percent a year. We've just had back to back seven six point five and five percent inflation. And that's why, for example, one of the roadblocks between the two, uh, the two sides, um, the studios, the DGA did their deal with, at 5% for the first year for the increases. The Writers Guild wants, uh, wants 6%. The studios offered 4 They They probably ultimately will compromise on 5 But uh, who knows why? But SAG-AFTRA went in asking for 15%. And, to to and make up for I, lost ground. 
to make up for lost ground, a fifteen a catch up payment for for lost ground, um, and anticipated level of inflation. And fifteen percent actually is completely consistent with the two and a half and three percent they used to get, because that two and a half and three percent was a point to a point and a half above inflation when inflation was one to one and a half percent. If you look at if you look at what they're asking for, they're asking for a catch up and. Um, and then years two and three, that in fact are completely consistent with what they've gotten in the past. They've come down to 11%. It was their most recent um, uh, offer on the table or ask on the table, I guess I should say. And the studios are, are at 5%, which is not going to cut it. Well, Fran Drescher said uh, this offer from AMPTP uh, was ridiculous. There was nothing there. It was insulting. Bob Iger's take is a little different. He seems to be the face of them in a way right now. He was, of course, at a, a Grand Poobah event, and he was opining on the industry, and he basically said the unions are really being unrealistic. You know, you, know, you, cannot, you cannot expect what you're doing. And, of course, everybody immediately pointed out the $100 million he's making over the next two years. Well, you know, for Bob, I, I, what I, what I, I'll tell you what I told ABC News, which was, when they, pay, they played the CNBC clip of Bob Iger at Sun Valley at Herb Allen's retreat, and I said, you know, it is just a bit rich to, to see Bob Iger at an event for rich, wealthy executives saying that the actors are asking for too much when they make a thousandth of what he makes and saying that, uh, complaining that, among other things, he, he, we, they, the companies can't agree to a performance bonus for uh, in residuals for shows that are successful when his Even own contract and the other executive <laughs> has a performance bonus. <laughs> and of well, course, his performance bonus is actually quite high. It's and five fact, times his salary. That's right. Yeah, that's where so, they put all the money because they don't want to pay income tax. Right. Well, now they pay the income, deadline. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. They pay. They don't want to pay the money. same level of income tax. Right. If, they if pay most the same of your level salary of income tax. No, no, they no. They pay the same level of income tax. No, income tax, most of your salary is in compensation other than income, so you pay a different level of tax no, than you would if it was uh, pure salary. Bonus, if the bonus is cash, which his, bon- which his bonusing, I believe, is, you pay, uh, you pay income tax. It doesn't... It doesn't uh, it's, it's only when it's stock. It's, it's, stock, it's, stock off, it's often stock that you can buy within a certain amount of time at a certain level. That's often where the compensation comes in. That aside, they are usually engineered to lower their total tax burden whenever possible. Their goal is not to pay as much taxes as possible. Their goal is to pay as little tax as possible. And so ever looking Look, at just the guy's got to build a luxury yacht, compensation. Michael. Anyway, He's deadline had a story. Yacht. Deadline had a story <laughs> quoting somebody anonymously saying, yeah, of course, our plan at the studios is to bleed the writers dry. Not even be think of talking earlier than October or November. Of course, we saw what happened to the agents. The writers struck against the agents and the writers destroyed them in that negotiation. We're not going to make that same mistake. We're going to wait until they are struggling to pay their rent. And then maybe we'll talk and they will come on their knees and give us what we want. Most people said, who the hell would give that interview? Why did anybody give that quote, even anonymously? (laughs) Who knows whether anybody did. Deadline Deadline made it up? I know Dominic Patton. I, I, my, my jury is out. Um, there, deadline, deadline has no, and 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 Dominic can be can be a good reporter. I'll say that. But there was no indication of what seniority that executive was. The MPTP has said that executive does not speak for the companies. Uh, the um, uh, deadline, for its part, does not have editors, and uh, fr- and not infrequently does not adhere to journalistic standards. 
I've been trashed in Deadline, not by Dominic, by, by, uh, by Nikki Fink, who the founder of Deadline when she was alive, um, uh, and by um, another reporter. And I, I can take being trashed. What I, what I find objectionable was I was trashed and lied about and was not, asked, was not only not asked for comment, not, afford, not called, not afforded Journalism 101, if you write if you write about someone, let alone if you write about them negatively, you ask them for comment. They asked me for no comment whatsoever. Contacted me not at all. And back in with with the Nikki Fink uh, instance, um, I tried to post a comment on in the comment thread, and she, she moderated she moderated her comments. She wouldn't even post the comment from me, let alone call me for comment in a story. Okay, so that's, so that's a reasonable. You know, that- that's a reasonable take on deadline, but do you doubt for a second that's exactly what the studios are doing? They are going to stay away from the negotiating table as long as possible until writers are hurting so they can get the best deal possible. We know they're eventually going to have to make a deal. There's no reason why they couldn't start negotiating today, but they have no interest in starting to negotiate today because they want to make the writers as weak as possible. That's the same way Anthony Rapp, who was at the negotiating table for SAG-AFTRA, said the studios weren't even trying to negotiate in the last few days before the deadline they, they weren't even pretending to negotiate it was a joke and because they're going to wait out and try and break the union and that's is clearly the the policy of the studio they made a deal with the directors if they could have made a, a deal in their favor with the actors they would have done it and they're going to wait weeks or months as you've already said previously so whoever was quoted whatever we know in general that is what the studios are planning to do isn't it whether the intent is literally to starve people out of their apartments and houses, which is the inflammatory aspect of the quote, is something that my jury is out on. Uh, do they want the unions as weak as possible? And are they? And do they engage in policy to do that? Yeah, they do. But that's not acceptable. There's no reason not to come together and say, we all have shared interests. We all want to work together. We're going to have to make a deal. Let's talk now. There's no reason for us to try and break you. You're not the enemy. We're all trying to make a living here. You know, there's a way to have negotiations that is not, you are our enemy. We want a scorched earth policy. And it doesn't feel like the studios are interested in having a meeting of equals to talk about the future of the industry. I mean, there's no question there's been a fundamental change in the business in the past decade. It's just, that's upended entirely. Things that people have depended on for a lifetime to make their living, like residuals, have disappeared. You know, there's, the, no, the, there's no alternative universe in which Bob Iger views SAG-AFTRA or working in middle-class actors as equals. Well, to the point where, to me, the, uh, and I'm just going to call them management. So the AMPTP, I'll call them management because, you know, it's a labor issue. AMPTP is management in this case, but the studios, the networks, AMPTP, management, their mindset seems to be somewhat clear when they're, and this is something that came from them, they wanted to uh, give, hire an actor for a day as background, scan them, give mm-hmm. them one day's salary, and then use that scan in any kind of of content background. that they wanted, whether it's a, yeah. as background, yeah. I, so I, think, like, I think Sperling, we should acknowledge that the that the alliance denies that that was their proposal. Okay, well, that, okay, that be that as it may, that's news. That's uh, news to Sperling. He didn't know that. That's that, uh, that was what was coming out of those. You know, I know that that uh, was what was coming out of some press reports. That's correct. 
uh, and and the alliance, uh, it is my understanding, has denied that that was their proposal. Um, the you, it is, I think it's important to remember um, two things. One is that this is for for we can focus on what the uh, details of the you know roadblocks are and you know residuals and this and that, uh, but this is. Uh, looking at the forest rather than the trees, this is a this is an example of of class warfare. The other thing that's important to remember, though, apropos of what you just uh, you know said, is that the first casualty of any war is truth, and not everything that gets reported with hyperbolic passion is is completely accurate. Well, and it might be coming um, from within because uh, that actually came from Duncan Crabtree uh, in in uh, the in, in the uh, I'm interview. Aware, that Matt I'm aware that Duncan did. said that, that Duncan was quoted as saying that um, the alliance. So you know, look, I interviewed union and management side sources on another disputed issue, which is what exactly did Carol say? Carol Lombardini, the president of the AMPTP. Um, when Duncan said, you know, we're going on strike, but we are open to talking, you know, in the future. And Carol said something along the lines of, and I cannot say that this is an exact quote, but along the lines of, you know, that they weren't going to talk while the union was on strike because that's not what civilized people do. Yeah. Well, that's why people go on strike is to of get. Of course, to talk it's, more. it is yeah. their it is the union's and labor's legal right to go on strike. It is labor's moral right to go on strike. Not only that, I can tell you this: if the studios who are the board of the AMPTP were to tell Carol, if she assuming whenever her contract is up and assuming she wants to re up, um, if they were to tell her, you know, you've been making a lot of money, you've been doing a great job, but Times are very tough. Unfortunately, the only offer we can make you is 50% of what you've been making, which is still um, six figures, by the way. Um, I can tell you that Carol would go on strike. In other words, she would walk, which is what, when one person walks, it's called uh, saying no. When a union full of people walk, it's called a strike. She would absolutely strike. and. Uh, she would absolutely take the, the phone call four or five days later saying, look, we've managed to find some more money. Can we, can we talk? Can we make this work? You know, how about some equity in some of the companies, you know, as, as well as, you know, some more money than half your salary. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a negotiation. Of course she would. So the, you know, there is a not the, in the minds of people are uh, who have lots of money and or lots of power, there is a non-equip there is an inability to see the equivalence between what they do and expect and what middle class and working class people do and ex- and should have the right to expect. People well, support- well, mm-hmm. it's well, important. Can we just to talk a little bit about the logistics mm-hmm. here? What? Because can we talk a little bit about the logistics around the strike here? And, yeah. and what I mean by that is a lot of the uh, so I, I just happened to have lunch and dinner with with some writers and and you know they used to be you know on some big shows uh, and you know the, and some actors apparently they're kind of spreading out the A list actors they're saying look don't all go on strike day one 
because we need you, you day you don't 50. Don't go on the picket line, on the picket line. Right, right. You know, stay home. We'll call you day 30. Uh, and so they've actually got schedules as to when the A-list stars are supposed to of come course, out. Of course, of course. But, but at the same time, there's a list of things that you can, as a SAG member, SAG after member, do and not do. You can't promote anything. So there was uh, the Oppenheimer premiere in London. They moved it up so that they, they could uh, get the premiere in at least started before the strike started and the actors walked out of the premiere after it started because the strike had begun. Um, but yet, uh, and then of course there's uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, there's the Venice Film Festivals, there's the Emmys, which I know we're going to be talking about. Uh, and there's the, you know, Comic-Con. of course there's Comic-Con. Comic-Con yeah, yeah, the so strike affects everything. Yes. So what in the, world is going to happen or is it everybody just playing it by ear for now everyone's playing it by ear um the writers strike 15 years ago the contract expired at a different date it expired in november so the strike began in november and a hundred days in took us into february um and the oscars were looming and the fear was that they on the part of the companies was that the actors in solidarity with the writers would destroy the Oscars by boycotting them the same way they did with the Golden Globes, which they turned into a cut rate press conference. Um, ABC didn't want that because the Oscars, they broadcast the Oscars because the Oscars are the second largest advertising uh, uh, television event of the year after the Super Bowl. The, the movie studios didn't want it because the Oscars, both during the Oscars and during the commercials, promote movie going and movies uh ironic interestingly if you think about it even the writers and actor and actors on their behalf didn't exactly want to destroy the oscars either even though that was their the threat that they held because if they had what would they do next so the threat of destroying the oscars was actually more potent than the than the reality of of going of following through over that would have been that is one factor uh, the Oscars were one factor that drove a resolution uh, to the writer's strike. My fear, I hope I'm proven wrong, is that there are no other external drivers that will begin the end game of this of these strikes except the Oscars. Right, there's the no Oscar- fall TV there's no fall TV season anymore per se. All the networks have loaded up on reality shows. They've got backup plans. They're planning to show UK shows that aren't popular here. They've got a plan in the works, and it's just not the same. Production happens year-round. Shows are launched year-round. Fall season is still important, but not nearly the way it was before. Right, and the the Emmys and the Emmys are were never as important as the Oscars in terms of an no. award show, and 15 years later are are even less important as award audiences have dwindled. My fear is that there may not be another driver to the end game, except the Oscars again, which means a, which means that we might be looking at strikes until January or February. If that and happens, the Oscars, even the Oscars doesn't have the same business. impact. No, they don't, but uh, something has to eventually give. If there's a strike through, through January, it will destroy this business. As it is right now this week, I can imagine a lot of studio executives are saying, I, we need to figure out our release schedule moving forward because this is going until at least September. Uh, and 
we need to figure out the release. I mean, this is mostly about TV, and yet it also has to do with film because of the residuals and the and and all of the health and and uh, pension. But it's going to obliterate the release schedule in twenty four if this goes past September. It's that's, already going to mess with it. That's right. That's right. And there and there's speaking of logistics again. You're not allowed to do any production. I mean. The writers went on strike and there were some news stories. The actors went on strike and it was the lead front page news story of all these newspapers. Well, so that should give you some sense as to the, the, the difference in scale and the difference in importance that at least the public, the, the media thinks uh, about these strikes. But you're not allowed to do any production except if you're a signatory and are willing to sign not a waiver, but an interim agreement. If you're Which a signatory and have no connection, the project has no connection whatsoever to the major companies. So you have right. you you have to you're have an no indie financing. Film. You're indie. You're, you're 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 completely indie. You have no financing deal with mate with the major companies, and you have no distribution deal with the major companies. And then they will consider uh, granting an interim agreement. But you know, to to Sperling's point about the differing um, media reaction. The uh, Screen Actors Guild is 15, sag after is 15 times the size of the Writers Guild. I wrote on Wednesday night when the deal, when they failed, when the, the talks collapsed, uh, that when the picketing started, that the actors were going to flood the zone. And that's exactly what happened. The quantity of actors, 1,000, 2,000 actors at each studio, the, the quantity of picketing is just exponentially larger. And in terms of the awareness of this, I can tell you that I did South African radio this morning. Uh, my commentary, my comment to a Canadian uh, outlet was picked up by Al Jazeera, translated into various languages, and then picked up from Al Jazeera by the Albanian Post. Uh, other quote, It's like a game of telephone. It's like a game of telephone. Wait a well, second. And, was it and, AI? Because you could... <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. And, um, uh, and, and um, I've been... Other quotes of you know my and the ARD in Germany, the German broadcaster, Polish, Spanish, Mexican. Are we at what? Oh dear, I'm sorry. One's stand by, BBC. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you. That is the first time in history anyone has said. BBC, please hold on. I'm talking to Showbiz Sandbox. <laughs> that, that, was, <laughs> that may never that happen is again. Very true. <laughs> that is very, very true. I totally I d- didn't think about I'm it. I'm sorry, way. BBC. I'm talking to Showbiz Sandbox. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, this is just, I think, you know, the, you can see that this strike has really riled uh, Hollywood as if they didn't see it coming. Yeah. It's, I mean, you and I discussed this at the beginning of the year, uh, and then as as the writers uh, approach, we thought that both of them would be on strike. I honestly thought it was going to be the DGA too. Yeah, but they just they, they went they, out. Yeah, and they can't renegotiate their deal. If the writers and the actors get a better deal, the DGA can't come along and say, "Whoa, wait, 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 wait. we want to get that too." They'll just have to wait until twenty twenty six when their contract is up, and then they can kind of level up. You sure so they don't speak. have a most favored nation clause? Nope, they do not. That's already been checked into. They do not have a... But if you look at, like, what... You know, I did not think that AI 
was such a big deal, no pun intended, right. uh, was such a big deal uh, in these negotiations. Because it's like, who knows where it's going to be in five months? Well, I really appreciate Jonathan. I, I really appreciate Jonathan Handel pointing out the things that we weren't accurate on or that he'd gotten new info about or had been updated. And this, no, no, no. They deny saying that. So that's important because we always want to be accurate. There's no use. Um, his take on Deadline being a completely unreliable outlet, a la a tabloid, uh, the, the, the Nikki Fink days are over. They're now owned by people Way who over, own yeah. Rolling Stone and others. They seem to be doing a better, more responsible job. But it's good to know that people are questioning that. It's like, okay, it's not a top exec. They weren't authorized to speak to them. Nonetheless... Their outrageous quote is right in line with what they are actually doing as a thing. But you're right. AI, we talked about it last week. And in the last five days, very quickly, Sarah Silverman, the actor and writer, is joining a class action lawsuit against Meta and OpenAI for copyright infringement. A music platform, Mubert, has generated 100 million AI created or assisted tracks. That's equivalent to like everything on Spotify right now, mostly in the lo-fi, ambient, and chill categories. In Brazil, the classic late singer Elis Regina, who died in 1982, is in a new Volkswagen ad where you see her duetting with her daughter via AI, which obviously was done with the cooperation of her estate. In comics, a comic book called The Abolition of Man is coming out in a trade paperback deluxe edition. It's the first comic book series to be entirely illustrated by AI. In novels, a major author said his publisher wanted to put it in his contract that they could use AI to train via his books, use the content of his books to train AI so it could write more books in his style after he died. And the WGA East has called out the owner of the AV Club and other websites for using AI to generate crappy stories, which, of course, were filled with mistakes and errors. In fact, one article, they said, hey, AI, give us a list of the Star Wars movies in order. And it couldn't even do that right, which is kind of scary because that's a pretty basic thing you would assume AI could do well. So, yeah, AI is a big, big story. Have you seen uh, the commercial with Elise Regina? I, I have. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it looks fantastic. Yeah, I don't know her visually as well. It doesn't have the emotional impact it does for me that people in Brazil would have, but it's beautifully done. It looks it looks very sweet. It's done with the cooperation of her family. And, you know, Volkswagen had that great ad with Nick Drake and Pink Moon. So they've got a thing with music and Volkswagen that, that's really working for them. Well, and if you think that story was big news, I wonder what you think about some of our stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop this week, because it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, if you like bundles of TV channels but hate paying for sports that you never watch Charter has a deal for you, and a move that's been a long time coming. Charter is now decoupling regional sports networks from their cable packages. In most cases, any sport of of decent package would include the obvious major channels like TCM and CNN and Fox News and PBS and TBS and, yes, ESPN, which is a sports network, among many other uh, channels. But it would also include sports channels 
that a big chunk of viewers never watch. Some don't even know they have. They're called the regional sports networks. Uh, And if you wanted a basic cable package without sports, it was usually so basic that almost no one watched it or wanted it. So you had to pay. Charter actually owns some RSNs, as they're called. Uh, But it's just made a major change. Charter, Spectrum, for you and I, Michael, we have Spectrum. Mm -hmm. It's now offering a strong lineup of channels without all the RSNs. It and others usually tack on. So those MV, you know, those those uh, cable providers usually just, as you say, bundle them in. Now that should lower cable bills for the majority of viewers who don't want those channels and cut off a major flow of cash that sports networks and teams depend on, and that is the money that people pay for their, you know, their channel, but you know they never really watch it and they don't want it. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it could be a big deal. You know, you need to make cable an attractive proposition again. All the streamers are saying, gee, if only we could bundle these channels together and somehow make them available to people at a reasonable price. And we're like, yes, it's called cable. And the reason people left cable was because the bills got bigger and bigger and bigger. And when they couldn't increase that, they started increasing your Wi-Fi charges to extraordinary levels. And it's just a mess. And that's why people are cutting the cord, which I thought was a long time coming. Like, no, no, just switching to another bundle, even if it's over the top, is not cutting the cord. But now people really are. They're not taking a bundle. They're not taking any network television. They're just buying, you know, ESPN Plus and Disney Plus and Peacock and Netflix, and they're fine. You know, they've got enough stuff to watch. You know, people say, I don't want to pay for Fox News, or I don't want to pay for CNN, or I don't want to pay for, you know, the ESPN Plus and, you know. Yeah, that's because all they did was they saw $170 for their cable package and thought, that's too much. So however you do it, if you lower it, people will be happier and maybe they won't jump to all the uh, premium streamers and ignore and leave behind standard television packages. A a couple points here. Do you remember how we've been saying for years this is what's going to happen? That people will cut the cord and they will jump to, as you say, YouTube TV or or who like well, they'll no, basically take on I don't think YouTube TV is cutting the cord. I think it's just going to a, a less expensive okay, option. What 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 I mean is they will uh, abandon cable providers. That's they will abandon some form of linear TV. Well, everybody talked about that, but we always emphasize. But if you're paying for a bundle of channels, it doesn't. You know, there will be winners and losers, and the industry cares. But that's not walking away from television. If you're paying for YouTube TV like me and paying $80 a month and getting 100 channels, including a lot of sports channels, well, that's just going to a different... That's like switching from, you know, Spectrum to DirecTV. What's different is when people aren't getting any TV package and they're just picking a handful of streaming streaming channels. They're not getting a bundle with the four networks and PBS and basic cable channels. When they're not doing that at all, that's the danger here, and that's what's actually happening now. Right, and now we've been kind of watching this trend for like, it seems like a decade, maybe more, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, we know that, and this kind of goes back to that, that comment uh, we made about, you know, really stepping in for Bob Iger, because obviously we know this <laughs> kind of stuff. You and I know this. And it does seem to me, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that Bob Iger is just figuring this out. <laughs> but in any case, before we talk about that, let's talk about Microsoft and Sony. All right. Uh, you know, as you know, Microsoft is set to purchase Activision, one of the biggest gaming companies in the world. The FTC denounced the deal 
That's the Federal Trade Commission here in in uh, the United States. Uh, they said that it was anti-competitive, but that you know they lost their bid to block the move in court. The court ruled against them, and then immediately they appealed, and then the court ruled against them in appeal. So only UK regulatory bodies stand in the way now. Others also denounced the deal, including, by the way, Sony, which sells the PlayStation platform, a major competitor to Microsoft's own Xbox. Sony insisted the hugely popular game, Call of Duty, would be held hostage by Microsoft. Either it would keep the game for itself, or Microsoft would make it available much later to, you know, Sony and Nintendo, or people would get an inferior version. Trust us, said Microsoft. They made offer after offer, increasing from three years to 10 years with a promise to keep the game available under good terms forever. Sony kind of said, no, 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 we're going to wait to see how this whole court thing goes. Well, finally, they agreed to the latest 10-year deal, but they're still hoping against hope that the British are coming, the British are coming, uh, and the deal falls apart because, you know, they, they don't want to see Activision get scooped up. So big deal or big whoop. I think it's a big whoop. They had no choice. They waited as long as they could. They used all the leverage they could to get as good a deal for their customers. They want Call of Duty on their platform. They want it to be the same game that people are playing on Microsoft's platform and anywhere else. And Microsoft's saying, oh, we'll, we'll, don't worry, we'll do it. Big deal, you know. So they, they have no choice. But this also, you know, when they talk about appeasing regulators and, oh, don't worry, we'll take care of Call of Duty. Yes, it's one of the biggest franchises around in video games, but the next franchise won't be covered by any, any vague promises Microsoft made, and they may keep it to themselves. They may get a game from Activision, and they'll do exactly what Sony and everybody else fears, which means unless you're on the Microsoft platform, you're going to get a much crappier version of that game. So this problem is solved, but the problem in general remains, and the deal in general is bad for video gamers and video game fans and the industry because consolidation always reduces creativity, re reduces robustness, and reduces a healthy market. Well, yeah, I mean, I, they kind of would be silly to try and keep uh, Call of Duty. I mean, everybody's eyes are on Microsoft, and if they did try and Well, there's kidnap, no law against it. They can do well, whatever right, they want now. If the deal is approved, they are free to do whatever they want. Right. Uh, if they did, though, the next deal would, you know, where <laughs> yes, they're already got Activision, you know, exactly. But that's what, you know, well, now the next time we really won't allow you to merge with somebody. Uh huh. Well, yeah. I mean, you've all bought everybody anyway. So what's right. the difference? Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, I guess why don't we head on over to music because uh, physical sales of music and streaming continue to grow according to the data company Luminate. It's made it's uh, made a mid-year report, actually, filled with interesting stats, and the company is adding more and more countries to its coverage all the time. What's the big headline out of their report? Music streaming is by far and away the most popular way to consume music, and it's growing. In 2023, worldwide consumption hit one trillion audio streams in just three months, so one quarter of the year. A trillion streams. That's an entire month quicker than in 2022 when it took four months. If that keeps up, music audio streaming will hit, get this, four trillion streams in 2023 because I can do math because, <laughs> you know, one quarter. Uh, audio and video streams will easily top six trillion. On-demand audio and video streams grew by 15% in the U.S. and 30% worldwide compared to one year earlier. Think of that. 30% increase over last year. Dear God. 
why that yeah. would happen so much right now. Those are astonishing growth numbers, given the fact how long we've had streaming and, you know, YouTube music or whatever people are doing to, to watch video streams on their, you know, my God, that's an amazing growth. Well, Asia grew by uh, 100%, actually. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and Latin America by 70%. And that's, that's huge. Uh, by the way, and a lot of that is catalog. It's not new music. New music counted for 27% of consumption. So three-fourths of music consumption is for catalog. Physical sales also grew in every category, with vinyl leading the way. Uh, fun insight, by the way. Almost all CD sales are for K-pop and fans of Latin music is all about streaming, okay? Physical sales are less than 1% of their total. Now, all those people, they went out and they, they bought the, all the vinyl that they're buying is all Taylor Swift. They get home and they realize they have nothing to play it on. Same, same with CDs. They get home <laughs> crazy, and they're like, wait, crazy. I, I, I don't have, yeah, what am I going to do? So big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. The catalog thing is interesting. This company, Illuminate, defines catalog, as we've said before, uh, sort of the standard is any album that came out at least 18 months ago. But their second caveat, because albums play for a long time, is that it came out at least 18 months ago and does not have a song on the Billboard radio charts and is not in the top 100. So if you have an album that came out two years ago, like, say, Adele, and you're still in the top 100, you're not a catalog album. If you're Morgan Whalen's last album, you've never left the top 100, you're not a catalog album yet. You're still a hit current album. So that includes a lot more albums than I would have anticipated necessarily. It's not just 18 months, boom, your catalog. If you're still remaining in the top 100, you are not a catalog album. So that means I think it's a little more legit. And that means, like me, 75% of the music people are streaming is older music. It's stuff from the 80s and the 70s. That's what I do all the time. And that's interesting and fascinating to me. That deep library really matters to people. When they're streaming, I think 90% of the time people are watching Ted Lasso on Wednesday. When they are listening to music, they are checking out old stuff. It would be like if everybody went onto Netflix and watched Cheers and Hill Street Blues and older stuff. So that's cool to see and very interesting, I think. Well, I think music holds up like that. I also think that we have playlists to thank for a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to stick with music for a bit. Because okay, one, more, one more second. Let me just say, country is growing hugely around the world. That might just be a case of Morgan Whalen. He's so big. And almost half of U.S. listeners, 40% of them, will listen to music that's not in English. So that's very cool to see. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. And uh, the one thing that the Illuminate and people are putting their hopes on are super fans, people like me and you maybe, who listen to a lot of music and pay a lot of money for CDs and vinyl and go to concerts. And they're thinking we can get that core group of people, that one out of seven people who really loves music, to pay more. Give them some exclusive stuff and they will pay $30 a month for their streaming service rather than 10 or for access to their favorite artists like Taylor Swift. So that's what they think is the future because most people are listening to older stuff. Well, yeah, uh, I'm not going to pay anymore. So uh, <laughs> Spotify, no. Uh, now, I, as I was going to say, it's, it's really, we're going to have to lean on a cliche here because it, it really is Taylor Swift's world and we just live in it. Swift is currently on a world tour that is epic in every sense. She's also taken the unprecedented step of re-recording all her earlier albums and urging fans to listen to the newer recordings only, not the older recordings, the newer recordings. It's working. Her latest album release is Speak Now, 
Taylor's version, it just dropped and it set records that put her in the most elite of company. Now, this is incredible. So hold on to your hats here. Mm. It's the biggest week for an album this year with 500,000 copies of actual albums sold. And it's, a, Street- it's an old album. It's just a, re- a new recording of an old album. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm telling you, they're getting home. And they're like, oh, I can't. Where is our CD? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, streaming bumps up the total to more than 716,000 equivalent albums moved. Now, here come the stats. Swift has four albums in the top 10 at the same time. Four. Only two other artists in history have done that. Herb Albert. That's unreal. Herb yeah, Albert. Not the own, Beatles. Owned a jazz club I, I, I would assume it was yeah. the Beatles. Well, he did that in 1966. The year I was born. That's how long it's been since someone did this and somebody else did it. Prince had five in the top 10 after he died. Swift now has 12 number one albums on the Billboard Top 200, tying Drake for third place. Jay-Z, he's got 14 and the Beatles have 19. Swift will undoubtedly pass them all. Swift has enjoyed a number one album for five years in a row, tying Drake, Jay-Z, and Paul McCartney. His old band, has the record the Beatles had the number one album for seven years in a row. They better watch their backs because I, I I think they got to put some new stuff out. Otherwise, Taylor Swift's going to catch them. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Well, you said it all. It's a, it's a big deal. They're just remarkable stats. You can talk about changing eras and changing tastes and how achieving this or that is harder. That's an amazing accomplishment. Four in the top 10. You know, it hadn't happened in 60 years. A number one album five years in a row. There's only, you know, four four groups or artists who have done that. That's just unbelievable. Well, I'm going to jump back up here to uh, in our show notes because I know that we have some stuff. Last week, I was like, why are we talking about this story? Well, yeah, let, it, let actually, me... it actually turned out to be like, oh, it's a huge story now. Here, let me tackle this one. It's the tabloid frenzy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. The BBC tabloid frenzy continues, and now we know who is at the center of the storm. News presenter Hugh Edwards is the BBC talent facing an internal inquiry over his behavior. He's like, (laughs) huge. He isn't just one of the BBC's stars. He is the network's top news talent and one of the most respected in the business. He was the man asked to break the news to the world on the BBC that Queen Elizabeth had died. It's like having Walter Cronkite involved in a sex scandal, if scandal there is. The wife of Edward spoke publicly for him. She also said he is receiving in-hospital care for his mental health. Edwards has been open about battling depression in recent years. The police investigation is apparently closed. After it concluded, no laws have been broken. However, not breaking the law is not the same as not crossing an ethical or moral line or simply doing things the BBC might find bad for its image. An internal investigation moves forward, while at least one young man has also come forward saying he had contact with Edwards. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It kind of is a big deal, uh, and I'll say why. I, I mean, I know that last week I was like, why are we talking about this story? It was, it was reported in the, in the Sun, and it's obviously not true. Well, the, the BBC is what caused all the ruckus here. Yes, the Sun, people were kind of like, whatever, we don't believe it. But now it's... You know, the way the BBC handled this is what everybody is talking about, not just the fact that it was the sun and whether it's true or not true. And they kind of think this guy got railroaded and they're not really sure what they think because the BBC had that problem uh, where they didn't respond in the past historically to allegations. They kind of overreacted this time. That's all the reporting that I see in, in places like The Guardian and The Evening Standard and places like that. 
Well, I don't know anybody thinks they overreacted. They looked into it internally when they first heard about it. It wasn't the same thing that was reported in The Sun. And uh, they reached out to the people, and those people didn't respond, and they let it drop. Then the mother went to The Sun and made these accusations. And my, my issue was not how the BBC responded, but that the rest of the media reported these accusations breathlessly, even though their only source was The Sun. That's what I object to. Now, you know, do your own reporting and have other sources. You still have to credit the sun if you run with the story, but breathlessly whipping up a frenzy when your only source is one person in the sun is not a good idea. Though that person was speaking publicly, it was not a, an anonymous thing. It was the mother of this person and so on. Nonetheless, that was my main objection last week. Now we know something happened. We have more BBC people coming forward. Some said that he made inappropriate comments to them, younger male presenters uh, that they felt uncomfortable with, but they feel like the BBC does not have a very good whistleblower policy. If you raise your hand and say, I feel like I've been mistreated by this person much more powerful than me, like everywhere, you tend to find out that, you know, nothing happens and now you're marked as a person who's a complainer or you're, you know, it's very difficult to step forward and raise those issues. So maybe something happened that was unethical. It doesn't seem like anything illegal happened. Uh, and I'm shocked that people keep print, putting the headline saying, man accused of paying money, young underage person for photos, sex photos. It's like, well, the young person said there's nothing to it. It's a lie. The police say there's no crime that they know of being involved. So why are you still alleging the outrageous things said in the sun, which is not a good source for information? And at the heart of it all is a presenter who may have done bad things, but he is also dealing with mental health and is in the hospital and they're hopefully trying to keep him alive and not harming himself. So it's all complicated. It ain't easy to investigate yourself. The BBC does need to do a better job. But in general, you know what? Do not repeat crap that's in the tabloids unless you do your own work before you run headlines about it. Well, I don't. Hey, care Michael, about how, that. Mu how much money are, are do you have on you right now? I've got about fifty, sixty-two dollars. Okay, so yeah, we're not gonna. Okay, because here's the thing: CAA is in play, Creative Artists Agency, mm -hmm. one of the biggest uh, talent agencies in in the world, uh, and they're legendary. They're up for sale. Ooh. French billionaire and husband of to Salma Hayek, who I think is actually introduced that way. Uh, Hayek Francois-Henri Pinot is making a play for Creative Artists Agency. The play value, values the company, I get this, $7 billion. That means private equity firm TPG, which valued the company at a mere $1.1 billion almost a decade ago, would profit very nicely. This might be a good time to say that Showbiz Sandbox is also in play and we are really ready to entertain offers from private equity firms, Elon Musk, and any other interested parties, you should write to us dirt. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, big deal or big whoop? Uh, big whoop, I would say, unless people feel like Francois-Henri Pinot is going to do a better job overseeing CAA or will have more long-term solid interest than a private equity firm, which are notorious for wanting to squeeze a company dry and then walk away from it. Uh, has there been any issue about CAA that makes us think they would be better off with a different owner? No, but at the same time, uh, they are owned in part by a private equity fund. They've had the had a you know their investment for ten years now, uh, and I think that's a lifetime in the private equity world. You want to see a return, uh, and one way to do that is to create a transaction like this. So sell it to sell it, sell create it. a transaction yeah. to sell it. Yes, well, CAA is for sale. Uh, I think Disney has some stuff for sale too, don't they? 
Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, once upon a time, Taylor Swift's catalog was also for sale. And now a bunch of stuff, as you say, Disney owns is up for sale as well. The company paid a ton of money to buy most of the assets owned and operated by Fox. This was back in 2019. And one of the crown jewels was Star India, a satellite TV service that was hugely popular, thanks in part to its owning of the streaming and broadcast rights to Indian Premier League cricket, the country's most popular sport. It lost the rights, and now its streaming service Hotstar is bleeding customers by the millions. I should say it lost so, some of the rights. It has some, some rights still, yeah. but it did not keep the streaming rights, I believe. God help me right. if I'm wrong. Well, now Disney may be dumping it. At the same time, in his now notorious CNBC interview, uh, after Disney honcho Bob Iger finished chiding the actors for being unrealistic, he made clear that other parts of Disney were up for sale, like, you know, ABC. Linear TV, he says, is a no-growth business. He said, yeah, it's in more trouble than I anticipated when I returned back <laughs> in twin. I'm like... How how is this news to you? You got your start in TV. This is you should know all about this. It's been going on for ten years. How is this like news to you? And I'm sure all the people at at ABC and 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 uh, FX were like, "Wait, we're up for sale? Wait, what?" Like and they're learning about this from from Iger during an interview. Anyway, so uh, who needs a linear TV uh, package? Because, you know, apparently Disney has it for offer. So you can buy either CAA, a new Taylor Swift record, or, you know, an entire television business. Big deal, a big whoop. Well, it's a big deal that it's up for play. That's shocking in a way that they might dump ABC and have Disney+. Plus. That's kind of a talk about fundamental changes in the entertainment biz. And, of course, they have to purchase the rest of Hulu, though how that works out at to what price, I don't know. But the irony here, as many have pointed out, is that Bob Iger came to Disney and his reign was seen as buying a bunch of stuff. They bought Pixar. They bought Marvel. They bought Star Wars. They bought Fox. Now he's coming back to sell its stuff off. <laughs> it's like, all right, what can I sell? <laughs> so it's a sad state of affairs. Uh, I think it would be more accurate to say that the linear TV business is a, a, a collapsing business. If it was just no growth, it was just a mature business, like, say, owning music publishing or something, which has been growing a lot lately, I'd say, so what? What's wrong with owning a mature network that's pretty useful for reaching eyeballs? And, you know, the economics may have changed, but it still seems like a good biz to be in. Um, but, you know, the, uh, with the collapsing of, of cable packages and over-the-air packages, maybe it's not going to be a good business five years from now. He knew what to buy when. I'd say he was smart about Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars. Maybe not Fox. Maybe that hasn't paid off as well. But those other three purchases were really good ones, I think, and worth the money. Maybe he's smart now about selling it off. Well, some would say he's selling low. He could have sold it four years ago and everybody, people would have said, oh, why is he selling? Why is he selling? And then right now they would have been saying like, oh, he's so lucky. You know, the linear business is in decline. So, you know, now who wants a linear? linear I do because I want an Emmy nomination. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. But you don't need an Emmy nomination, uh, you know, a linear. Oh, I see what you're doing. You want to talk about the Emmy nomination? Keep going, keep going. Well, okay. You know what? Let's just move on to Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. It almost seems, it's like blowing my mind that like the Emmy nominations were this week. It feels like a lifetime ago, given all the news that we've had. <laughs> well, our big takeaway from the Emmy nominations is that the Emmy voters watched about four different shows last year. 
Pretty much. <laughs> Succession. <laughs> I mean, truly, the Emmy nominations were dominated by a handful of shows. It's always been like that. So it's that's nothing new. But maybe the biggest question is because of the strike from SAG-AFTRA and the writers. When will the Emmys actually take place? They're scheduled to take place in September. They're not going to change the voting deadline. So everyone has to vote and be done by the time that is already scheduled, even if the Emmys are delayed, as they will be. Now, SAG-AFTRA and others, the Emmy people are saying, hey, we'd like to position it in November. We think November is a reasonable shot. We're hoping to do it in November. Um, the network says, mm, how about January? <laughs> now, if they wait till January, that means they'll be doing the Emmy Awards in the midst of the Oscar race and, of course, TV awards from the Globes and SAG and Critic Choice Awards, which may well be more timely at that point than the Emmys would be. If the Emmys happen in September, they're going to be okay. If they happen in January or February, but they can't adjust what wins, they're going to be missing all the stuff from the fall. So they don't want to do that yet, but they're not going to have much choice if the actors are still on strike. It would be an empty stage. And this is the 75th anniversary of the Emmys. They should really even be doing a primetime special about Emmys over the years and its great successes like Cagney and Lacey and Hill Street Blues and, you know, history-making wins like Bill Cosby and I Spy and stuff like that. But they can't do it because they don't have it in the bank already. You know, so it's, they can't even come up with a substitute Emmy show until the real thing takes place. When do you think it'll take place? I think that um, somehow, I think August is a wash. I think, you know, everybody's going to go on vacation and the striking won't matter. Then everybody's going to come back in September. Kids are going to be back in school and all these executives are going to have to cross that picket line every single day. And at some point toward the middle to end of September, there are going to be some some of these studios that say, you know, We've got to, we've got, we probably have to get back. We have to get Deadpool 3 off the dime here. You know, we're supposed to, and I think that there's going to start to crack, I think. And what's the other driving force that you believe in? You were talking off air about how we decry studios and major major companies living quarter to quarter. But if there's a pressure point, um, Jonathan Handel talked about the Oscars. The other pressure point that you pointed out is quarterly earnings reports where they have to get on the phone with all the analysts in the media and defend themselves. And you're saying, look, they can say one quarter, yeah, we're on strike, we're holding strong, but they don't want to do it two quarters in a row. They sure as heck don't want to do it three quarters in a row because they're going to feel the Well, heat. right, because right now they get to say, look, we're saving all this money on productions and Quite honestly, we were in a bunch of deals that we didn't want to be in anymore, and now we get to like write it all off because they're all force majeure, uh, and now we don't have to pay that writer to write stuff we're never going to make anyway. Uh, and so, sure, that works for a quarter, but then come December, when you're talking about the third quarter, well, all of a sudden you don't look so smart anymore. Right now, in all, over the next <laughs> two weeks, we're about to hear about the the second quarter. Well. In, you know, what is it going to be like in October, November time frame? They're going to be talking about the third quarter, and that's not going to look so good. Uh, and so yeah. I, I think sometime in uh, sometime around October, I think, is when this this will probably get they'll get serious about wrapping. this. Well, up. that's that's probably too soon for an Emmy show in November. I mean, it shouldn't take long to no. put on the Emmys, but it will. So that even that means at best case scenario, you think January is the earliest the Emmys could. No, happen. I think they'll probably try and do it in November. And here's why they don't want to get caught in. Well, maybe January. Yeah. OK, January. Yes. But then it, it's what a nightmare. What a nightmare. The whole thing is just a yeah. nightmare. 
Well, when they happen, the big nominees are, of course, HBO Max. Half of the eight drama nominations are from HBO Max. You're going to see a showdown between The White Lotus and Succession. In comedy, the three big contenders are probably Abbott Elementary, The Bear, which my friends love in my movie awards group. One of them says one episode alone. I think episode six of the current season. He's like, it's the best movie I've seen all year, even though it's a TV Every writer I know is talking about The Bear. Every... Every yeah. person I know who's seen it can't stop talking about it. I watched the first three episodes. It was go. really good, and I plan on going back to it. There you go. And, and Barry uh, is, is also getting a lot of acclaim. And then in limited run shows, it's probably Beef versus Jeffrey Dahmer. Those look like the two big kahunas. It's a swan song for Better Call Saul, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, Barry maybe. I was thrilled to see Andor get a drama nomination, though unfortunately it got little else. That was the best thing I've seen all year, but I haven't watched a lot of television. And the biggest snub, or rather the biggest missed opportunity, is probably Reservation Dogs, which is widely acclaimed as one of the best shows on TV, but it's not getting any love from the My Emmys. problem with the Emmys right now is they expanded the number of actors that could be nominated because there's just so much television. Smart idea. Very good idea. So what do they do? They, uh, that's one, two, three. They give them all to the four, same people. Four <laughs> same from show. The White Lotus and four from Secession for Best Supporting Actor. So they basically nominated two shows. We, the, the, some people argue they have done a good job of throwing a wider net. Things like, uh, what's that comedy? Jury Duty with James Marsden and other freebie. shows. Said, well, look, freebie, they're, showing, yeah. they're showing some good signs of life. But that's nothing new. Back in the day, one of my favorite shows of all time, Hill Street Blues, got a huge boost from the Emmys. It made that show. It also brought Cagney and Lacey back to life. That was when the Emmys really mattered. In one year, all five supporting actor nods were from Hill Street Blues. Ooh. And like three of the supporting actress nods of five were from Hill Street Blues. All five writing nominations one year were from Hill Street Blues. And four of the five directing nominations were Hill Street Blues. So when they fall in love with a show, the way they did with Hill Street Blues and perhaps the way they have with Succession, uh, that's going to happen. You know, you see a lot of shows, but that's the one you love. And then the shows you ignore, like Yellowstone in 1923, that happens too. But, you know, we can hope for some surprises and upsets and shocks and, you know, deserving wins. You know, if you're going to say this person should have been nominated, you also have to say that person should not have been. So if you have a supporting actor for Succession or the, or the, or the White Lotus that you think, why were they nominated? Speak up now or forever hold Well, okay, so you asked why people don't vote and show up and vote for, you know, whether they're SAG after or WGA. I think uh, a part of it, not all of it, has to do with, well, you know what? I like the deal. Other people are going to vote for it. It's going to pass. I don't care. Um, uh, right. And I think a part... But things are so up in the air but, right now. I can't imagine feeling that. But way. I think yeah. you look at uh, the Harrison Ford of it all, and everybody's like, well, somebody else is going to vote for him. I'm going to vote for... You know, I'm going to vote for Henry Winkler. I'm going to vote for, for James Marston. Well, if that was true, nobody big would ever win then the most popular people would never be nominated because everybody would assume someone else was going to nominate them. I think it's a simple fact that they just don't think much of Yellowstone or 1923. They weren't that good shows. So I, shrinking. You know, as far as the critics were concerned, a shrinking, you know, it's not exactly, people are like, it's pretty good. It's about the best I've heard. Some people love it, I'm sure. Some people always do. But I haven't been hearing the way I have about the, 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 the chef, the chef, the bear, that, you know, shrinking is the show you have to see. 
I've heard that about Maisel at times. I've heard that about Ted Lasso. I've heard that about Abbott Elementary. I've heard it about The Bear. I have not heard it about Shrinking. That doesn't mean it's not a good show. I'm just saying there isn't that overwhelming, you know, you know, buzz and excitement for it. So, you know, there's so many shows, you're probably going to cling to the handful that you actually recognize even more than ever before. Uh, but, you know, hope lives on. Hope never dies. You know, not when the Emmy nominations are out and you can still hope you're going to win it all if you got a nomination. But unfortunately, some people have died. Very quickly, Emmy-winning producer Manny Cotto died at the age of 64. Cotto or Cotto. Apologize, I could not look up his name pronunciation online because he's a behind-the-scenes guy. But Manny Cotto was a big player in television, one of the most prominent Latin figures in TV for many years. He watched Star Trek as a kid, and then he grew up in South Florida, right near me, and he ended up working on a Star Trek TV show. So that's very cool. He had a really cool career. He did a famous spec script called The Ticking Man. This scored a 1.2 million payday for him and co-writer Brian Helgeland. I seem to remember this. I think the Ticking Man was the one where they did this big flashy, you know, auction and they sent out like a ticking time bomb box to all the agents and you only had 24 hours to respond. Do you remember yes, this? And th there was also yeah. the problem of it was a ticking box. <laughs> right. And, but it worked. Right. They got a $1.2 million for a script that never actually got made. So, you know, but that helped make his name. He was already working in TV as a director and a, became a showrunner. He worked on the final seasons of Star Trek, Enterprise, Dexter, American Horror Story. And the show of a lifetime for him was 24, the excellent Kiefer Sutherland drama. He won his Emmy for overseeing the excellent fifth season of that show. So, uh... Goodbye, Manny Cotto. Czech novelist Milan Kundera died at 94. A great writer. My God, if you haven't seen the film The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Philip Kaufman, you should watch it now. And then read the novel. You'll read the novel and think, wow, I love that novel. Wow, I love the film. I can see how this film absolutely captured the spirit of the novel, but I have no idea how somebody turned that novel into a film, nor should anyone try. Right. <laughs> it's one of the great conundrums of our lifetime. And finally, actor and singer and fashion icon Jane Birkin is dead at 76. I'll skip it. I'll skip well, no, actually, I think she's, she's, she's very interesting. First of all, she's, uh, you know, Charlotte Gainsbourg's mother. So that's one thing you could say. That's she right. was in Blow Up, right? Uh, yes, she, was, she didn't even know who Antonioni was when she auditioned for Blow Up. She didn't really even speak French, but it turned out she had a charming accent. Her British accent speaking French, the French people just loved. They adored her. Really, she's had an interesting career, but it's her personal life that seems far more interesting still. Her mom was a stage actress. Her dad was a, a, a uniformed person in the Navy and a spy of sorts during World War II. She was part of swinging London, but she became even more famous after moving to France and falling into the film industry. France called her a French icon. You know, God bless her. She's British and they, they named her a French icon. And she met Serge Gainsbourg. They duetted on sexy, controversial tunes. He wrote great songs for her. They were together for years, having their daughter Charlotte, of course. Their song, Je t'aime, moi non plus, or I love you. Me neither. It involves so much heavy breathing, it was rumored the song was recorded while they had sex in the studio. And in fact, they marketed it in a plain brown wrapper. They've stamped on it, forbidden to anyone under 21. So naturally, it became a worldwide smash. You know what? <laughs> but Where's our know, brown paper? Mm -hmm. Hold on, I've got to... Exactly, we'll put this show in yeah. brown paper. <laughs> but uh, you read all our notes about her, but uh, after, you know, he originally recorded it with Brigitte Bardot, 
but her husband at the time found out about it. I mean, they basically practically had sex in the studio and her husband heard about it and said, don't you dare release that. And so he brought it to his new girlfriend when he started dating Jane Burke and then he tried to get Marianne Faithful to record it so they could have fooled around in the studio. Hey, it was the 70s. And then Birkin starred in a film playing Brigitte Bardot's lover. Of course. She was a César nominee for her work in Jacques Rivette's The Beautiful Troublemaker. She made a horror film with Christopher Lee and Joan Collins, worked with Merchant Ivory, acted opposite John Gielgud, appeared in two Agatha Christie features, modeled Lee Cooper jeans, and had the Birkin bag made specifically for her by her And now it's one of the best-selling fashion items of all time. Oh, yeah. Agnes Varda directed the film Kung Fu Master, in which Birkin seduces a high school friend of her daughter, played by her own daughter, Charlotte. The boy is played by Varda's 15-year-old son, who looks barely 15 in the trailer. Good Lord, it was a different era. Then Varda made a faux documentary about Birkin's career, complete with fake footage from movies she never made. That's pretty cool. And then her daughter, Charlotte Gainsbourg, directed a real documentary about her. She's fascinating and interesting. And what I love about her is the movie Evil Under the Sun, one of those big screen adaptations of Agatha Christie uh, with, uh, 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 who was it, Albert Finney? Not Albert Finney. Who played Hercule Poirot? Um, I forget who played Poirot in Evil Under the Sun, but he was hammy as all get out. It's a fun, silly movie, and Jane Birkin has a killer, killer finale, a killer entrance at the end of the movie. It's just awesome, I have to say. So goodbye, Jane Birkin. And hello to our listeners. Yes, uh, we actually have a piece of of uh, a piece of new, a piece of mail. No, uh, Richard Abelo wrote to Dirt at ShowbizSandbox.com. That's D I R T at ShowbizSandbox.com. He writes, "Hi guys, it's a it's a, I should say it's an especially insightful. Oh email. boy, <laughs> I can tell you why Michael says that, and you'll see in a moment. He writes." Hi, guys. Wanted to send this while it was fresh. I think you are pretty wrong about Ted Lasso and its syndication ability. I know that's not a real word. Michael was... It yeah, is now. it is now. Congratulations. You are now... You have now... You should copyright that very quickly, Richard. Um, Michael was right there and didn't go the extra step. It does not have enough episodes for daily syndication. But what about weekly? If they only started with the first two seasons, they have 22 weeks of programming, 11 if they show two episodes a week. Considering there is no home media, I could see the value in that. Apparently, Apple thought it was worth keeping exclusive. I wonder what Apple is paying to prevent the show going to home media. So, you know what? I'm in your camp. I want to know, too. Uh, Now, he says, to support this theory, I went looking back. And according to Wikipedia, The Walking Dead was picked up by my network TV. Never heard of it. In October 2014. This was just before the fifth season was to start. That means they only had 51 episodes they could show. I imagine they did a weekly showing. That is the way, that is the only way that makes sense. Not to mention, that was a show that had a home media presence. All four seasons were already on DVD and Blu-ray by the time the syndication deal was made. Another example of this weekly syndication of a show would be the classic Black Sheep Squadron. MeTV has shown two episodes a week on Saturdays. That show only has 37 episodes. Currently, MeTV is not airing the episodes, but they were last year. MeTV will show things, remove it for a while, and then bring it back, apparently. Unlike your show, the email feels like it has gotten long. Speaking of going long, see what I did there? Uh, Don't complain. Stop complaining about your show going long. 
Well, thank goodness, because otherwise I'd have to complain. Well, anyway, uh, if the info is good, interesting, and entertaining, the size does not matter. Now, that's what I said. And, and I was just going to say, uh, you know, this is a great moment for it. That's what she said joke or something like that. Um, yeah, uh, keep he, going. he writes, uh, Richard writes, don't skimp on the obituaries for time. Looking at you, Sperling, especially don't skimp on obituaries <laughs> when highlighting more obscure people. Alan Arkin, that is being covered everywhere. But often Michael includes behind the camera people and other more obscure but important people. So thank you. And that came from Richard Abelow. And uh, thank you, Richard, for writing. And thank you for being so insightful. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would like to say. Uh, he brings up a couple good points. Yeah, we, we, we do want to try on uh, obituaries to focus on the people not everyone is covering. Uh, so that's a very good point. Certainly Milan Kundera got covered, so I rushed through him a little bit. Uh, but uh, Manicato and uh, to, Jane Birkin was widely covered. I must admit, I was a little surprised how much coverage her death got. That's, that's pretty cool. Shows the impact she had. What he says about uh, putting something in syndication, well, he's got a very good point. Of course, it's a new world than it was back in the day with Baba Black Sheep, which I watched when they aired it on weekends. I don't think there's the same demand for a show to air on weekends only because that's just not how people are consuming media anymore. Ted Lasso makes sense once Apple gets bored with it to put it as a fast channel. You know, you have it set up a channel, you watch ads, and you can watch all three seasons of Ted Lasso. That makes a lot of sense. If a network could buy the rights to it, and of course, Apple doesn't own a network, there's no, no link there, but if it was Disney with a show that had three seasons, of course, right now, they could air it on TV once a week because they're looking for content. That's exactly what is happening on network TV. They're taking stuff from the UK, like the UK version of Ghosts, a hit CBS show, and that originally started in the UK. They're going to show the UK version on the air because they need programming. Ms. Marvel is going to be shown on ABC because they need programming. So you're right. I, I think it's a different world. I think, you know, a fast channel for Ted Lasso makes sense once they're done with it on Apple Plus, assuming they ever are. By the way, it was created, the character, for a TV commercial. Yeah. Then Bill Lawrence of Scrubs was brought in to help make it a series. He has a deal at Warner Brothers, which makes Warner Brothers a co-owner of the show, along with Universal, which is more of a silent partner, though, of course, Apple is the one that actually commissioned the show. Warner Brothers has linear distribution rights to the series. Um, what that means in this context, I guess, is that Apple has a contract, and until they... Unless they want to give it up, it's going to stay on Apple. But if they want to dump it, I suppose, then Warner Brothers can step in. And that might have been the Is issue, by the way. That, it might have been like, hey, as part of the contract, you have to remove it from a service when it's on linear t when it's in that linear window. And Apple said, well, we can't do that. One of the reasons people subscribe to Apple TV is for Ted Lasso. I don't think they have that in the contract that they would have to remove it from Apple. That They, they bought the show and they made it. So that, that wouldn't make any sense. But I'm sure at some stage, if they give it up, then it goes back to the people who do have the rights. But we don't know the contracts. But it's an interesting issue. And uh, there you go. All right, we better stop. I'm about to run out of power. If I can't say goodbye at the end, goodbye. Well, uh, you know what? Then in that case, let me tell you uh, that you can subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, not Stitcher anymore. They're, they're not around uh, or won't be around soon. 
uh, anywhere they get podcasts away for free, like Spotify, uh, you can find us. So please do uh, subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us, ways to email us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is where you can email us. You can call us 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Uh, and Michael Giltz uh, can be found online, and every week he's got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week I can be found at syndicationability.com. I got it, Richard. You snooze, you lose. well if you can't find any of michael's coverage on that website uh why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until next week play nice (laughs) 